Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell, and I'm glad you're with me. Hey, if you own a house, or maybe you want to get in the housing market, know someone who does, or maybe you're a real estate investor, you have to stay tuned and listen to Aussie Jerk and I talk about what happened in this week's federal budget as it applies to real estate. I mean, there are lots of changes you should know about. I'm also going to talk with Victor Adair about arguably, I mean, the most incredible statement of the year when it comes to your investment, courtesy of the former head of the New York Federal Reserve, who says, hey, shockingly, the central bank wants your investments to go down. Plus, Andrew Rulin is going to drop by to talk about any investment changes we should be making in light of, obviously, we have a very different interest rate environment. Plus, I've asked Martin Street to drop by, straight to drop by and talk and explain to us, hey, what is all this fuss about digital finance? But first, the movie line that keeps coming back to me when I watch the tragic consequences of Germany's dependence on Russian natural gas, oil, and coal is from The Natural. Maybe you remember it. Robert Redford plays a gifted baseball player, Roy Hobbs, who on his way to the big leagues falls to temptation, has an intimate encounter with a woman despite the fact that he has a betrothed at home, but he ends up getting shot and doesn't return to baseball well for years and years. I won't go into more detail, but on the eve of the big game, the old, old wound acts up and puts him in the hospital. And he says, I guess some mistakes you never stop paying for. That's a scary thought. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples. One's pretty obvious, taken from the headlines. The other maybe more profound, but not as easily identified. See, when I see the picture this week of, oh my gosh, there's so many of them, of the barbarism of Russian soldiers on Ukrainian civilians, I can't help but think of the European Union and Germany in particular, who refused to sanction Russian exports of oil and gas, which not only makes the response to the Russian invasion far more ineffective, it literally finances Russia's invasion, which, by the way, was finally admitted this week by the EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, who stated in quotes, each day, roughly, we're paying one billion euro to import Russian energy, and that obviously a source of income that's used to finance the war. By the way, he went on to say that the invasion, since the invasion, actually, the EU has paid about 38 billion U.S. to Russia for energy. And why are they continuing to buy Russian oil or gas or coal? Well, it's because of a massive mistake. Germany actually consciously chose to be dependent on Russian oil, natural gas, and coal. It was by design, even though they were warned about the danger. They then compounded the problem by adopting unrealistic green energy policies. I mean, they decommissioned nuclear plants, and the only replacement energy could come from Russia. They relied on the intermittent power of wind and solar. Again, the only backup power, when the wind doesn't blow, sun doesn't shine, has to come from Russia. I mean, it's a monumental head shaker that this was their conscious choice to put their energy fate in the hands of Vladimir Putin. And this is despite, by the way, keep in mind, in 2014, Russia invaded Crimea. So how are we surprised they came into the rest of Ukraine? I mean, you like stats? In 2015, after the Crimea invasion, 35% of gas consumed in Germany came from Russia. Today, it's 55%. I mean, it was official policy that has literally, as we said, helped finance the atrocities in Ukraine. And sadly, we haven't seen the end of it. As we said, some mistakes you never stop paying for. Which leads to that other big mistake, arguably more profound. But maybe not so obvious, although the results are. I mean, we're looking at energy shortages, record prices for 
energy like coal, gasoline at the pump, diesel too. Natural gas prices have more than doubled, which now has pushed the cost of fertilizer up even more, led to higher food costs, and now many, thanks to the invasion also exacerbating the problem, many experts are warning of massive starvation in some developing nations. As I said, the results are obvious. But how do we get there? How do we make such obvious mistakes like thinking we could eliminate fossil fuels immediately as some climate activists demanded or put an end to increasing oil production despite the growing demand? Or how do we go 20 years or more demanding renewable energy without a plan to produce necessary resources? Come on, we are 14 years past the first government tax credits for electric vehicles. And literally, it was just this week that the federal U.S. government admitted, hey, we need 98 times more charging stations just for the government to go electric. I mean, I hate the cliche, so pardon it, but I hate, I mean, it wasn't rocket science. If you want electric vehicles, well, you need resources, copper, lithium. And if we're going electric, then we need charging stations. The Canadian federal government seemed to have just figured this out this week. If we want renewable energy, we need to plan so the Budget promises $2 billion on a program for a strategy to accelerate the production and processing of critical minerals. I mean, nickel, lithium, cobalt, etc. How can something so obviously be overlooked, though, is my point. Come on. If we're right, it doesn't matter if we're talking electric vehicles, wind turbines, solar. We need resources. I could give you many more examples, but here's my point. I think it comes out of the fundamental of no questions allowed attitude where anyone who questioned the green agenda was vilified. I mean, don't even dare ask something so fundamental as a cost-benefit analysis. We'll point out the transition to renewables would take something like two decades at best, and that demanding an immediate end to the production of fossil fuels was incredibly unrealistic, but it was treated as tantamount to heresy. I'm not going to do justice right now to the danger of no questions allowed attitude, and it's so evident in so many areas but the green agenda is certainly topping that list. But questions are the foundation of progress and innovation. It's through questioning that we see the holes in our reasoning, yet we've rejected that approach. Come on, we vilified medical professionals who question the official response to COVID. We still do. We do it in climate change. Now, as I said, obviously, this is a much bigger subject than I have time to go into here. But I'm going to finish with what the prime minister himself said last month although he does not walk the walk. But in quotes, talking with people who think differently from us is how we challenge ourselves, and challenging ourselves is how we grow. Well, there's too many areas we've absolutely rejected that approach. Hey, I just want to remind you before we get on with the show, we have our Q&A session, the first one for members of the Inside Edge. It's taking place April 14th at 6 o'clock. Uh, they weren't just going to go like, I don't know, 40, 45 minutes, something like that. But it's my chance to answer some questions, maybe be a little more thorough. And I'm looking forward to it. Inside Edge subscribers can send in their questions. And all you have to do is be a member of the Inside Edge. It, easy to do. Just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. I think it costs $199 per year. And you get all sorts of other things. This isn't it. This is just one of the aspects of it. Our first Q&A session, April 14th. Go on mikesmoneytalks.ca. Sign up. Send in your questions. We'll be right back.
it's been fascinating to see over the last couple of months coming out of the tragedy that's been happening with the Ukraine and the invasion there, though, is the importance of energy security. Now, that should have been obvious months ago. I mean, for example, Europe certainly had record high prices boosting when we started to talk in September, October, November, but somehow it seems to just get on people's radars over the last couple of months. Maybe it was $2 gasoline here or, you know, the record prices down in the States, but that's brought up a whole other can of worms here. And that is the U.S. response. I'm going to bring Michael Levy in to talk about this because Mike, as a Canadian, I mean, it's one of those things that I think caught everybody's attention when all of a sudden Canada starts promising more oil and the headline this week out of the Wall Street Journal says, yes, we want more Canadian oil, but we don't want it shipped through a pipeline. <laughs> I just, yeah, okay, how do you want us to come with buckets? I mean, <laughs> it's, just, it's just so ridiculous. Biden came into office, first day in office, he cancels the XL pipeline. And that pipeline, that pipeline being built by next year, 2023, they would be so damn oil independent it would be laughable and all of a sudden they've they've morphed from environmentalists to hey gasoline prices are too high what are we going to do about it yeah and also if you look on where they went i mean i I commented on this going back several weeks but it was i really was a jaw dropper for me when the u.s went to venezuela you know send envoys (laughs) to venezuela to get them to boost their supplies and i'm going Really, Nicolas Maduro, you're going there? And then, of course, they top that up. They're trying to, well, it doesn't look like that nuclear deal with Iran's going through, because. but part of that impetus was, of course, to get their oil. And, of course, the Saudis. But it's just like, wow. I mean, the word humiliation's coming to my mind. Well, I, if you want to talk about dirty oil, I mean dirty oil, dirty political oil. And mm. the, here you are, Russia, Iran, the Saudis, and, and it just doesn't make any sense. But the U.S. has been hit with a real reality check is when the price of oil went up and, and partially went up because of world demand. Eric Nuttall was talking about this way before Ukraine, but now we have it going up because of the disaster that's going on there. And the United States is going, hey, wait a minute, we do want to be environmentalists, but it's going to take us some time to get from here to there. And boy, do we ever need the oil now. And it is cost, it's costing the Biden administration, but it's costing Americans. And there's a complete about face. Mike, the thing is, I don't know when this about face ends for Americans, because even if they start to solve part of the Ukraine and Russian oil starts to go to Europe and the shortage comes off, the prices are not going to come down that significantly because of the world demand for oil. Yeah, that's right. This let me let's make a clarification. That Russian oil still flows into Europe. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> all the sanction talk, it's it's been shocking though. The degree to which, and of course, Germany's leading that parade, saying, gosh, we've got to have, as I was alluding to in the commentary, but we've got to have uh, you know, the Russian oil, the natural gas, of course, leading the way there, but also coal. Yeah, it's just changed the whole debate around there. But interesting to see some behavior changes that I'm looking at. And on this side, that sort of green agenda has got to be smiling to some degree. On this side, you see all of a sudden people saying, hey, maybe I want an electric vehicle if this is going to be the norm. Well, you know, that's funny also, because in the last couple of years, three years, uh, people wanted electric vehicles because 
they were showing a sign that they were more interested in the environment. It was an environmental move. Edmunds.com, which is a source for all sorts of information on the auto industry and trends, said that's a complete turnaround now. People want electric vehicles, not because they're environmentally friendly. Believe me on that. They want it because they can't afford the price of gas particularly in the U.S. So whatever we're going through is, hey, it's okay. I want to be one of these people who's an environmentalist. or I want to be morally right or whatever it is. But wait a minute. Is it affecting my pocketbook? Hold on. Maybe I don't have to be that way. Well, this is what's so fascinating, though, Mike, is as we chronicle on the show, how many jurisdictions have sent out whatever they did, you know, sort of eliminated the gas tax or sent out subsidies. But the whole point of a carbon tax was to raise the price of gasoline to force that kind of change you're describing. And here's some of those very governments, especially throughout Europe. We've seen it. Well, in British Columbia, they're doing it, too, with giving a $110 check, I think, off the top of my head from their insurance corporation. Bottom line, it's another way of saying let's make driving more affordable or ease some of that pressure. So you've got that contradiction. You know, it's sort of like, wait a minute, you were pushing carbon taxes to make gasoline expensive so people would change into electric vehicles. Now when gasoline's expensive, you're giving them a rebate or a freebie so they don't have to change. I mean, <laughs> well, that's such a confusing <laughs> thing going on here. Well, here's a stat that I think you'll appreciate going back to the Edmonds story is uh, on March 13th, one quarter of shoppers on Edmonds.com, who is an auto online automobile site, considered a hybrid plug in hybrid or electric vehicle, a 39 percent increase from the previous week. And Mike, an 84% surge from the same week in February. Well, that didn't happen because there's that many more environmentalists. When it comes down to your pocketbook, people start to think, I think just a little differently. And in fact, these numbers are showing that gasoline and fuel is too expensive. And in the United States, particularly, and they're going on bended knee anywhere in the world in order to procure for political reasons. Well, just one more on that, on, uh, you know, how ill-prepared we've been, all the talk. And I guess I'm doing a little bit of, uh, you know, I told you so on this, and I appreciate that. But you'd have to see the emails I got or communications over the years, Mike, when all I said was, hey, you need a practical plan. That means uh, cobalt, lithium, copper, nickel, you know, where's your infrastructure, all of that stuff. And uh, seriously, the blowback I'd get from people who told me they were keen on the climate change agenda which was sort of ridiculous, but now that's coming to the forefront. So let me just leave you with this. This week, the government admitted they've got about 1,100 charging stations. Here's the thing. They need 100,000 at the rate we're going, uh, you know, if they're going to have the sort of EV revo- uh, electric vehicle revolution they're talking about over the next decade, 100,000 more. And that's not even getting into the materials you'll need for that. But I'm just saying it's kind of fascinating. The stats that you just said, people all of a sudden going, "Okay, maybe I take the EV. Government's on the other side, confused and saying, maybe I'll see if I can give you an incentive not to because we'll make gas driving easier or less expensive. Oh, and by the way, we need charging stations anyways. I mean, it's just been such a schmozzle. It has, Mike. And, you know, it's the old story of if you got caught in British Columbia during the floods this past fall or winter. If you get caught coming out of the Florida Keys when there's a hurricane, cars lined up to move, they can't move, all of them are electric vehicles, and you've got 112 charging stations or 10,000 charging stations, 
it's going to be the biggest mess. You've got to do things in order. And if you do them in order, it may take a little longer, but then it's going to unfold properly. The story you tell is unfolding uh, like a, uh, a Marx Brothers comedy. Well, I'll tell you this, by the way, the word, word schmozzle is an economic term, I'm sure. But uh, there you have it. Mike, thanks for taking the time. Good stuff. Thanks, Mike. Time now for the quote of the week. Boy, it was just over 50 years ago. It was February 21st, 1972. Richard Nixon became the first sitting U.S. president to set foot in the People's Republic of China since, boy, it was established in 1949. His meeting with Mao Zedong is considered a pivotal event of the last century and huge far-reaching implications that are on full display today because it opened the door for full diplomatic relations, economic cooperation that transformed, you know, obviously the geopolitical landscape with China now growing into inevitably the largest economy in the world and arrival to the U.S. throughout the world. Western trade and investment finance not only an increase in the standard of living of the world's most populous country, but it also financed China's military and state security apparatus. The Chinese aggression, though, including the breaking of the international agreement regarding Hong Kong's independence two years ago. I mean, we know about their cyber attacks or spying, technological theft, intellectual theft, political interference, and other efforts to destabilize Western democracies. I think it's laid bare, though. It was a total repudiation of the doctrine that if we increased economic interaction and trade with China, it would lead to liberalization within China. Well, it's done the opposite. And that provides the context of the quote of the week by Jason DeSena Trenert. He's the CEO of research firm Strategus. They specialize in economics, politics, and policy research. In quotes, if Chinese belligerence and increasing authoritarianism over the last two years have taught us anything, it's that no amount of trade and international cooperation will instill what are generally considered to be Western values and other civilizations who have no desire to adopt them. Trusting China to do anything other than what is directly in its own best interests, especially when it comes to trade-offs between economic development and issues like climate, would seem to be in direct conflict with history and common sense, and it poses serious geopolitical risks to the international democratic order. And to quote, that China will operate in its own best interest and is not looking for a win-win with Canada or any other Western nation. And this is sadly despite numerous warnings from the Canadian military, CSIS, every other Western intelligence agency, despite a litany of aggressive actions. It's that sadly that lesson is still lost on so many of our political leaders, as well as some in business and academia. I feel like this is a bit of an obvious statement, uh, duh. The interest rate environment's changed. Obviously, the global geopolitical environment has changed dramatically with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. But of course, it's the sanctions, uh, the reaction of different nations. All of that has created a very different environment for your investments. I wanted to chat with Andrew Rulin of Integrated Wealth Management about this. Andrew, appreciate you taking the time. And as I say, what about it? I mean, we had kind of an easy time. You know, once we went uh, post the lockdowns, we knew the central banks, they promised us they'd keep rates down forever. You know, that kind of a statement. Uh, you know, we didn't have the, that level of geopolitical disruption. Well, I, or let me ask if you agree with me. I mean, it looks like the entire investment environment has changed dramatically now. I think it, I think it has. And 
basically, in, in some ways, it's been predictable. The timing may not have been as predictable, but all the things that, that you and I and all of your your guests have been talking about for probably about a decade, they're, they're starting to happen, like rising interest rates, the increase in commodity prices, supply disruptions, um, you know, civil unrest uh, leading, you know, also to to global conflict, uh, political year from hell, all of those things. So all the things that we've been warning about are happening. So it's game time. Well, let's talk about how people approach their investments. I mean, first of all, let's talk about the interest rate side. It's not just that interest rates have bumped up because they bumped up a bit, but, you know, they bumped up dramatically in the bond market. The rate of change, at least, has gone up dramatically. The, the level's still not there. But what does that tell you to do when you look inside someone's portfolio? Uh, and let's do, you know, broad, I know it's a general question, but, you know, generally, what would you have them look at? Well, when we look at fixed income, we think that, people need to completely rethink the notion of what the fixed income or non-stock portion of their portfolio looks like. We've known for quite some time that we're going to soon be, and now we are, in a rising interest rate environment. Most people who are not particularly savvy or don't pay close attention or haven't educated themselves on this, they, they don't realize the risk associated with uh, a longer-term bond, especially a longer-term government bond, in a rising rate environment. So it's it's basically we need to rethink what that non-stock portion of your portfolio is. And of course, you know, we have solutions for that, but we implement those solutions, you know, starting like three, four years ago, and then uh, some more uh, some more tactical moves that we did actually about 10 months ago. So we're, we're happy we did. Are you comfortable, uh, you know, for example, I myself, as you know, I've been making it very clear. I thought there was one more kick at the can down in interest rates. And I said that in February of 220 at the Outlook Conference. It said one more to come, probably in the summer, early fall. From that point on, though, I have not held anything with a maturity. Pat and it may not be the right thing, but it's a safe thing. I didn't hold anything with maturity over a year. Didn't matter what it was. Uh, I was waiting for the environment we're in right now. Exactly. So what you did was you made a, a risk management decision and... Um, you you were comfortable with foregoing a little bit of capital gain opportunity by buying a long bond and just have something short term. And that's great. But now that we are coming out of the other side of the interest rate uh, cycle, things are more challenging, right? Because we don't really have significant opportunities for a long or for short term capital gains when we're in a rising environment, right? That the, the flow has shifted. And so we're not in Kansas anymore. Do you recommend, and again, you're looking at everyone individually, and I want to really emphasize, we're making broad sort of brush statements here. You have individual circumstances. You may have an individual risk tolerance. It may be to do with your financial circumstances, depending on your age. There's a list of things that a professional like Andrew would look at, but I'm asking sort of broad brush questions. Andrew, do you have people, would you, you know, again, if they want that sort of safety, fixed income-y kind of approach, but safety, one, what kind of areas are you telling people to be in then? Well, it's typically um, in shorter term corporate credit, um, because, of course, with with corporate bonds, they tend to be shorter duration. So shorter term to maturity, less vulnerable to interest rate upticks. And you have security, unlike government bonds. 
And the other part is alternatives, what we call private alternatives, which is basically in two categories. One is business-to-business lending or the secondary credit markets, but also in private real estate. And both of those types of alternatives actually benefit from rising interest rates. So instead of being in um, or on the, the wrong side of the rising interest rate environment with longer-term government bonds, particularly with the alternatives, we're actually winning from the rise in interest rates. Okay, I know time's running short here, and I just want to tell people uh, right now, I'm glad I thought of it, is, of course, Andrew's doing a webinar right after the show. Uh, it starts at, uh, well, about, uh, you know, depending on what time you're listening to this, but it's taking place at 11, uh, 11 a.m. Pacific uh, Daylight Time in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, and noon Mountain Daylight Time, and it's joining us, of course, today. Uh, so I just want to make sure you know that and you want to sign on by just going to mikesmoneytalks.ca and that way Andrew can get far more into this. I can't help myself. I start getting too chatty here and I know that we've got time constraints and we do, but very quickly here, uh, the sanctions, you know, the huge move in commodities. Again, is that an opportunity? Again, broad-based question. Uh, Are you looking for a position in those? Do you already have a position in those? At a high level, we always look at crisis having two components, danger and opportunity. And if you if you don't take advantage of nimbleness, you're going to be a victim as opposed to being an opportunist. We actually started investing in, in commodities specifically uh, just over a year ago. And that part of our client portfolios is actually up about 33% to the end of March. So we're really happy about that. We actually took our cue from the 2021 Money Talks uh, World Outlook Financial Conference. And within about five weeks, we actually had our first trade on in a structured portfolio. So, you know, we're we're happy about that, obviously, because that's helping to offset inflation in, in other parts. And uh, perhaps uh, soften the blow of some other parts of the portfolio that haven't done as well. Our bond portfolio has done better than the market, but it's still down slightly. So we're very happy about that. Uh, and I actually think that there's a whole lot uh, greater effects, uh, you know, secondary and tertiary effects from the sanctions that people haven't yet started to really uh, calculate into their into their worldview. And it has significant impacts on global food supply, global food price. And we have to be careful because when people get hungry, they get angry. Absolutely. I I mean, that's one of my themes is we're setting the stage with the two most important variables, energy and food. But that's what I would just want to tell people what you're going to be talking about in the webinar. And the title of the webinar is Grace Under Pressure, Disciplined Portfolio Solutions Amidst Global Turmoil. Global turmoil. Turmoil is the emphasis there. There are things you should do, take advantage of, but also, and I love Andrew's emphasis on risk management there, but just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, sign on, and as I say, it's going to be noon uh, mountain, uh, 11 o'clock on the Pacific. Andrew, you've done a great job here. I know you've got to get a little more prep time in, but we appreciate you finding time. No problem. Thanks, Mike. And one thing I'll also note is that if people can't attend the webinar live because they're listening to the podcast after it starts, they can still go to Mike's Money Talks and register, and they will get the recording of the live event in priority sequence. Good idea. Good idea with that one. Andrew Rulin, Integrated Wealth Management. Now, stay with us. We're still going to be talking Aussie Jurek. And then one of the big areas in the budget, of course, we focus on is real estate. Aussie's going to give us the lowdown, what he found in the federal budget. 
I got Victor Adair. There's so much to talk about in the market mayhem, I call it, plus the most astounding statement of the year on investments coming from a former Federal Reserve president. I mean, it's jaw dropper. You want to stay tuned for that on Money Talks. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. You know, for the last two years, we've been inundated with stories, COVID stories, about overwhelmed intensive care units. I mean, many of the restrictions that we've lived under have been rationalized by the fear that if the COVID infection spread, our ICU uh, would be overwhelmed. Which brings me to the stat of the week, and, and it's thanks to the excellent work by Blacklock's reporter. The federal government states that it sent a total of $3.2 billion to the provinces in emergency health care funding during the pandemic, and that was to help alleviate the stress on the hospital system. Yet, and here's the shocking part, the Department of Health reports that six out of 10 provinces failed to increase the number of intensive care unit beds to help them cope with COVID. I mean, say what? The biggest fear was hospitals being overwhelmed, ICUs not able to handle the serious cases, and yet when the money was made available, six out of 10 provinces, their health authorities didn't expand the capacity. And the Canadian Institute of Health Information compared the numbers of intensive care unit beds staffed and in operation, that's the key, they were ready to go, staffed and in operation, from April 1st, 2020, to February 14th this year. And this is what they found. Prince Edward Island, ICU beds dropped from 40 to 12. New Brunswick, down from 197 to 113. In British Columbia, ICU beds staffed in an operation fell from 825 to 728. Newfoundland, down from 95 to 91. Quebec, unchanged. They have 1,296 beds. Nova Scotia, unchanged at 122. And then we had four provinces who increased the number of ICU beds that were staffed in an operation. Alberta went from 353 to 392. Saskatchewan, 122 beds to 142 beds. Ontario, 2,012 beds to 2,343 beds. And Manitoba, from 86 to 124 beds. But I'm astounded at that. It was a shock to me when I read that 6 out of 10 provinces actually reduced the number of beds that were staffed and ready to go in operation. But that's the other, that's, there was one other side, by the way, to this that shocked me. It's how few beds there are. Add up the total. How few beds there are for a country of 37 million people. Wow. It sure wouldn't take much to get over capacity. And I guess that's what we experienced, or at least that was the fear, seems, seems to me, every day of the pandemic. Well, one of the biggest subjects in finance has to be things like cryptocurrencies, or you heard about non-fungible tokens, NFTs, you know, with some famous examples, millions of dollars raised. But it's all part of digital finance. And I think that's a subject that every one of us has to be aware of. I think it's the future. So whether we like it or not, we've got to get into it. And if you sit back and think for yourself, how much has changed in how we do finance right now? It may not be exactly the same, but I mean, how much we're doing online. Maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago, that would have sounded like a strange idea. The pandemic has pushed forward a lot of economic transactions online. Maybe some people had never shopped online before. Well, they certainly are today. 
So I wanted, I asked, and we got a chance to talk with Martin Straith of the trend letter going back, I don't know, it was about a month ago, a great talk about what's going on in the markets. But I said to him in specific, because the trend letter follows uh, digital finance and, and uh, focuses on digital finance also. So I said, let's do a separate little chat on that. So I'm pleased to welcome Martin back to the show. Martin, thanks for taking the time. Just even thinking about this, my heart, my head started to swim a little bit. What, what, do you, what, what do you tell people when they say, hey, what is digital finance anyways? Uh, good to be here, Mike. Well, you know, I think that, like you say, uh, people have heard of cryptocurrencies. Um, but really what we're talking about here is, is more of the platform that cryptocurrency works on. And, and it, that's the blockchain technology. And, and this is really starting to expand. And just a, I'll give you a quick quote. Here's, here's from Deloitte. Tokenization threatens to disrupt many industries, in particular the financial industry, and those who are not prepared, the risk being left behind. And really what we're looking at here is that with this, you know, with decentralized finance, basically you can, you can do most of the things that banks do. So you could earn interest, you could borrow money, you could lend, you can buy and sell assets. And that's a big part of, I think, what we should talk about today, because I think that what people need to understand is just like the internet changed how we do business, tokenization and, and decentralized finance is going to change how we buy and sell assets. Can we um, maybe give me an example right off the bat here? Uh, like, or I'll, I'll throw one at you because I've been hearing advertising that I can buy a fraction of a piece of art. Now, I know I could buy a fraction of other things, but they've sort of taken it, mapped it out digitally, you know, I'm saying just as a concept, and I get a little piece of it, like a fractional. Exactly. So that, that is one of the key points of this, the whole tokenization is that, you know, let, you know your audience is you're probably mostly retail investors. They're not huge investors. So, you know, let's take Van Gogh's Starry Night, you know, that painting's worth $100 million. Well, I don't think I've got that in my back pocket, but let's say the Museum of Modern Art, which owns that painting, decided that they want to raise some money. Um, so they've got this great asset worth $100 million. And let's say they want to raise $30 million to, you know, to buy some more art or to do some other things. But they, so they decide that they, they've heard about tokenization, that, people, that they could actually tokenize that painting. And, and basically, it's, it's digitally chopping it up into small pieces. I mean, it's worth $100 million. So they could, do, they could literally create you know, a million tokens, each worth $100. And then you and I and everybody in your, your audience here could buy. You could buy one token worth, $100 worth. You could buy 10. You could buy whatever you wanted. And then, you know, you can, 10 years from now or five years, you know, if that painting is worth $200 million, well, your piece of it would also be worth more. And this is really, to me, what's going to be so dynamic about this whole tokenization is it allows for this fractional ownership. And it's really what it does is it opens up all of these markets to the small investor. You know, like I say, you know, you and I could buy a piece of that famous painting and, you know, say we own it. And, you know, the other key here is what we'll get into is that it, it, it gives you the verification and authenticity of ownership and of the actual asset. And that's the other big key here. So you're guaranteed it's real, it's yours, that whole thing. And we don't have to get into how they do that. I mean, it's using the blockchain, I know, and, but we don't have, but it's just me as a buyer. It's kind of like, I don't know how they made my sweater or my car, you know, but I know in the end product though, 
I'll own a, a fraction of whatever we're talking about. It might be a piece of real estate. I mean, this is, I looked at, was it Goldman Sachs now after boohooing or, or, you know, all of this stuff now does it with gold bars, you know, that kind of thing. But it will guarantee my unique ownership of that unique asset. That's exactly right. So, you know, and, and you know, if you go back to the Goldman Sachs thing, I mean, you know, back in 2017, um, Jamie Dimon was saying that, you know, you know, Bitcoin is a fraud. So, and now here we are today, JP Morgan is actually um, tokenizing gold bars. And, and they're doing it because um, they want to prove that this gold bar was mined in a, you know, an environmentally sound mine that's following good, you know, good practices. So, so and what they're doing, they're actually, um, they're, they're putting these gold bars in these like boxes and they're actually tagging them and they, they're following, basically electronically tagging it from the source of the mine to the actual end point so that the owner of this, you can buy it. And that token verifies that that gold bar came from this mine. And it's, you know, it's, it's true stamped certified um, gold bar. And again, if you bought that gold bar, you know, the token, you could actually sell the token representing the gold bar. I mean, you don't even have to take possession of it. And that, that other owner, that the new buyer, gets that same verification and authenticity. And that's the key, what's, what we're talking about here. And there's so many different um, examples of how that can work. And, you know, one of the ones, Mike, I think that we, you really want to look at is, is the whole real estate market. Because if you look at real estate, you know, it's, you know if, you, if you add it all up, great use cases, real estate is, you know, if you take your residential, commercial, and agricultural real estate, that totals about... $325 trillion globally. But the retail investor, they only have access to maybe 7% of that total. You know, again, the average investor can't be buying office towers and, uh, you know, warehouses, et cetera. But with, with the tokenization, you, you now can have that, that access. So, you know, you look at real estate, it's, got, it's notoriously a liquid market. It's slow manual process. And it's got costly layers. So you've got agents, lawyers, uh, high deposit fees. With tokenization, what it allows is that fractional ownership we were just talking about. And what that means is that those assets can be broken up into smaller pieces, meaning that it gives access to large and small investors. So now a small investor can buy a small piece of a large piece of real estate and he can buy multiple pieces of different pieces of real estate or like he just said, art or whatever. And, and within his budget, in, within his portfolio, he can diversify and be owning all these different assets that he never really had access to before. The other thing about tokenization is it has smart contracts. And this is what blockchain, you know, the, the Ethereum blockchain is a, is, is a very powerful tool. And these smart contracts allow these uh, systems to, to streamline the process with built-in compliance. And, you know, it's decentralized, it's accessible, and it's secure. I think real estate's going to see some dramatic changes here in the next uh, few years. There's lots of things we put value on. That's the nature of the system. One of us values it, the other doesn't. But can you, and as I say, I, I hope I don't regret this, give us a, just a little primer on non-fungible tokens, because that's another big marketplace. Yeah, I know that it seems to scare certainly the older generation and it's and it's the younger generations love it. 
but it's it's very it, you know if you think of it very simply like non-fungible means it's not interchangeable so like you know uses the mona lisa well there's only one of those so that's a non-fungible tangible asset you know your house is a non-fungible tan- tangible asset like it may be the same design as another one down the street but it's on yours is on a different lot you know and you know yours is you furnished differently you may have had an air conditioner or whatever so it's unique it's, even though it looks the same maybe it's a unique item and you know you can have um you know you compare that to um fungible to fungible items so let's say a dollar bill so a dollar bill is no different than another dollar bill you know bitcoin you if you own some bitcoin and i own some bitcoin they're all the same they're all worth the same at that at any given point in time the bottle of beer is the same thing it's fungible there's you know it came from the same vat and and so so those are those are fungible what we're talking about non-fungibles is that it's unique and that's where all of these collectibles are starting to happen because it's it, there's one of a kind somebody you know and, and these are some pretty goofy things some of these you know the ape yachts and and all this kind of stuff you know so you may not care about these intangible items like this digital art but a lot of people do and that's fine like you say the value is what in, anybody's willing to pay for it i mean when the the probably the most famous example was about a year ago um non-fungible token happened where um this artist named beeple he was uh he did this art called uh, every days and it's the first 5000 days and what this guy did is every day for 5000 days so like 13 years he would do a, a new digital art piece and basically he made a collage and then Christie's to auction house actually auctioned off this and the, with the non-fungible token again verifying the ownership and the authenticity of that that uh, item it sold for almost 70 million dollars and i think that's where people started going well this is nuts but that is you know that part of it is nuts but here's some uh, there's some real world life problems that these non-fungible tokens and tokenization are actually solving i'm hearing loud and clear this is bad news for counterfeiters everywhere you know because we can verify the authenticity and the ownership too i mean theft is also not a problem any longer with this uh, uh with tokenization absolutely absolutely i i can remember myself i was a big fan of uh, muhammad ali and i bought a picture of the famous you know he's standing over top of sunny liston uh you know uh when he defeated him the first time and he sort of get up you know he's sort of saying well i bought that picture well what we're just describing is you could buy the digital form of that picture and you'd have guaranteed that would be yours no one else would have it this is a, a an exciting a key way it's changing how business transacts it's going to change how we buy and sell things and all of that and as i say uh martin covers it in the trend letter so that's the trendletter.com and i might say that uh we have a special money talks offer for the trend letter which also by the way i should have mentioned this i mean the trend letter talks about equities currencies bonds commodities precious metals they also have the trend technical trader uh which talks about uh non-fungible tokens uh trend disruptors which is also part of this tokenization so they have three letters there but you can go to the trendletter.com and there's a special sort of money talks offer uh for that so i would take advantage of it but this is a very exciting area martin i appreciate you finding time for us yeah my pleasure mike well leading up to the federal budget we heard lots of talk about real estate i think it's a staple of 
politicians, no matter if you're running on the municipal level, the provincial level, federal level, to talk about affordable housing. Meanwhile, it seems to cost us every time they do. All I know is this, for all the talk about affordable housing over the years, housing continues to be less affordable. i got to get Ozzy Jurek in here, though, and we'll talk specifically about the budget. Ozzy, lots of sort of promises or hints that we would be talking about real estate in the federal budget. Let's start with maybe the one that jumped out at you first. Yeah, and you and I talked about some of the stuff that was in the original platform that the Liberals had last year. And so it's not a real surprise that they did include the ban of no foreign buying for two years allowed. Now, that includes condos, apartments, single residential units, but they're exempting recreational units. Just on that, it seems to me, though, I remember on Australia did the same thing. And it became really problematic in terms of, well, fine, I just got myself a local to purchase the property. And I did a private agreement with them, a private contract. And then I just sent the local out to do my, uh, I guess in this case, uh, literally my bidding. But uh, so I'm not so sure. Obviously, they don't include details of how they'll actually do it and enforce it, et cetera. They make the bold statement. Do you have uh, hopes that it'll be uh, sort of even efficient in that way? Well, even if it is, I mean, look, in BC, we've had a, a tax, a 20% foreign buyers tax and a speculation and a vacancy tax. Ontario had a 15% tax, which they just increased to 20%, which is kind of a joke since we don't have any foreign buyers. Why are we increasing the taxes on them? But during the four years that we had the taxes, we've had a 50% increase in prices. So the foreign buyer, whatever he or she may be, had absolutely no impact on top of that. The bullpen research think tank in Ontario said that Canada-wide, there's less than 1% are home buyers. So when you look at that, and then, of course, you point out there are loopholes. I mean, there's people that, uh, that are exempt, which are uh, uh, foreigners that are buying their primary residence. There's students. There's all sorts of loopholes that people can squeeze through if, if, if they had to. And it will not make any difference, but it will annoy people. Imagine you are in Palm Springs now, and the U.S. government says, you know what, stop Canadians, don't buy here anymore. You're no longer allowed. I mean, it's a slap in the face, and foreign com countries that have tried it, it doesn't really work. I'm not sure that people aren't confusing. They may salute something like a foreign buyer's tax, but maybe there's some sort of at least emotional confusion with the illegal buying that we talked about with Sam Cooper, where some money's being washed. And obviously, I think every Canadian supports taking very, very strong action in that regard. So there's a lot more needs to be done on that file. But it's that's the file. It's not the actual you know, I guess uh, legitimate foreign buyer is the word I'm using at this point, but people know what the distinction I'm trying to make as opposed to criminal and money laundering. But uh, as I say, I, I don't hold out much hope that's going to make a difference, but I'm sure Canadians, for whatever their reasons, are saying, okay, that's a good thing. Well, Mike, yeah, the crazy thing is this is a denying any foreign, foreign investor to buy real estate in Canada. Well, what BC had was a 20% tax on foreign purchases. So did Ontario. They actually increased it. And Nova Scotia also added that. So that is actually income to the government. By the way, that's gone for British Columbia. And it was a substantial amount of income. And on top of it, we don't know all of the loopholes that are out there that people could squeeze through if necessary. And certainly, as you point out, if Australia was an example, it was a bit of a, a gong show. Ozzy, let's just change a little bit here. Something else that was in the budget that immediately caught my eye was right now, of course, if I buy a house and maybe I reno it and I sell it six months later, you know, sell it within the year, 
I'm subject to a capital gains tax if it's not my business. If that's my business, of course, it's different. Uh, but Or I just buy a house and then seven months later sell it. Well, they're saying they're going to change that from charging me a capital gains tax to charging it as if it is my business. They're going to charge it like income. Yes, that's right. They call it a business income tax starting on May 7. And, and it applies to all houses, uh, this anti-flipping uh, stance uh, starts at January 1, 2023. So anything you sell after January 1, 2023, and that uh, you bought on May, after May 7, uh, now attracts this tax. It's interesting, though, uh, how much of these kind of, uh, you know, governments are sort of floundering around here because we don't have a ton of data to say, for example, how prevalent is that? Yeah, and then, and, you know, on those things, there are always these loopholes, too, like this flippers tax also it excludes permanent residents, foreign students, and boy, under the heading of foreign students, you have all sorts of loopholes. But you're right, they, they want to bring in a new savings account, and all Canadians under the age of 40 can uh, save sort of 8000 a year. It's like a TSFA, you can put money in tax-free, you can take the money out tax-free up to $40,000. And the interesting th thing is that, first of all, all things that say tax-free is a good thing, makes me feel warm all over. But the three things is, if it that did work, if people actually would have extra $40,000, it would actually add pressure to the housing stock. Number two, only people that have extra $8,000 a year can use it. So the affordability question, the low-income person, it's useless to him or her. And then the whole idea of some of the other measures changing the first time homebuyers tax credit from 5000 to 10000 it's a good thing it adds $1,500 tax, but I don't think it will add any housing stock. And let's talk about that side because, I mean, there's a, certainly a, a no shortage of analysts who said, look, the big problem is we have a housing shortage, especially I saw the latest numbers. Uh, for example, you're out in British Columbia. We saw 100,000 new people come into BC in 2021, basically, basically a record. Yeah, two things there. Excellent point. They set aside $4 billion over the next five years to develop 100,000 net new housing units through the launch of the new Housing Accelerator Fund. Nice name. The question is that, that I have, and you and I talked about that uh, some time ago, what happened to the 2017 10-year plan, which is now five years old? We didn't get any 100,000 new houses, primarily because the federal government can't build them, the province can't build them. It's the cities that built them and, and through zoning uh, allow um, more, more creation of, of, of new houses. If you compare ourselves to Seattle, for instance, they have 10 times the rental housing built there because they have municipalities that understand that they are the ones that have to create it. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's a difficult uh, topic. We're talking about the federal government. I just wanted to put that perspective. There's only so much they can do. We can examine those proposals in that light. But really, you're going to come back down. It's the same thing you and I have been talking about for ages, which is you need all three levels of government in a room to really make this a priority and say, what are we going to do? Well, I mean, look, they have all, the budget has $1.5 over two years to create 6,000 new houses that are at least 25% aimed at women-focused housing projects, but no details. We don't know what that means. Then there's money for co-op housing initiatives, 1.5 billion loans and funding towards a national co-op housing strategy that hopes to develop 6,000 units, but no details. A home buyer's bill of rights that sets aside $5 million over two years to ensure the legal right to home inspection. All this was, some of it was part of the plan. 
but it hasn't changed. It really, it's as I say, there's lots to wade into. You're still waiting for a lot of details. We'll be here to chronicle it. In the meantime, hope you have a terrific week. Thanks, Mike. And I'd like to just briefly say I do my OzBuzz blog at ozbuzz.ca is coming out on Saturday night. And if you sign in on that website, you get it free, of course, uh, sent to your inbox. And then finally, I have found this week that um, I love finding money in my clothes, Mike. It's it's like a gift from me to me. <laughs> I don't mind that either. That, that old mystery $5 bill shows up. I love that too. This may be my quote of the year. I know that's early days. Certainly may be the quote of the year when we're talking investments. I'm talking about an interview that former Fed Chairman Bill Dudley gave this week. And in it, he says, in quotes, investors should pay close attention to what Powell said. Financial conditions need to tighten. If this doesn't happen on its own, which seems unlikely, the Fed will have to shock markets to achieve the desired response. This would mean hiking the federal funds rate considerably higher than currently anticipated. One way or another, to get inflation under control, the Fed will need to push bond yields higher and stock prices lower. Wow. Victor Dare joins me right now. Vic, I mean, when I heard that, I sort of went, I love it because it's certainly blunt, but that's giving stock investors, you know, pretty clear indication. You know, it's the old, don't fight the Fed. Well, we certainly didn't on the way up. Maybe we shouldn't fight them on the way down if they're determined to sort of change the monetary environment, the psychology, and doing that by getting stocks lower. Well, you know, we've heard things like that from different commentators uh, from time to time. But the fact that Dudley is formerly the uh, New York Federal Reserve president adds a little gravitas to to his point of view. And then there's like, let's say, the political angle. We've got the midterms coming up. You know, Joe Biden looks like he's going to lose control of the House, at least, if not the Senate as well. Uh, the Navy, the number one issue for voters is inflation. And I have written in my notes, not to pat myself on the back, it just seemed so obvious that because of the political pressure, the Fed may be pushed to throw the stock market under the bus to try to make the administration and the government generally appear to be doing whatever they can to fight inflation. And let's just be clear. I mean, what we've got right now uh, is such a high rate of inflation, low rate of interest. It doesn't matter if they bump it a a quarter point, a half point, another half point, another half point. We're still going to have negative real rates. In other words, you take what the interest rate is and you subtract the rate of inflation. And we're, you know, we're still in that territory for an awfully long time. So uh, I was just interested in uh, Dudley's remarks because he said, you know, nothing's changed. What are we, 5%, 4% off the highs in the stock market? So clearly the stock market isn't believing of a strong, tightening environment. Uh, We have seen the movements in the bond, bond market, but I think it's an important context for people to know going forward, this is the environment that we're investing in. As I said, we were all bullish on the market. You know, you, you were, I was very clearly stating the Fed has said, this is, I'm going back, by the way, to uh, 2020 when the Fed says, I'm going to lower interest rates, I'm going to rescue this. We said, don't fight the Fed. Well, I'm just still on that sort of note here. If the Fed is going to do a clear indication of making things tight enough to change the environment out there, the investing environment, 
I suggest maybe people should at least check their risk profiles. Well, we always want to be doing that, um, checking risk profiles, I mean. But a, a, couple, a couple of other things happened this week uh, that kind of stir things up a bit. We have the current vice chairman of the Fed, uh, Ms. Brainard, who um, previously was perceived to be one of the serious doves on the board. And she came out and said that the Fed is not only going to be increasing interest rates, but they're going to be aggressive in winding down their purchasing and subsequent selling of bonds and mortgages. Well, that comment really supercharged the move to higher yields on the bond market. I think the the 10-year bond market is now around 2.7% yield. Uh, that was uh, That's a three-year high. That's of about 70 basis points from where we were in December. And, and when it super, supercharged means it's the rate of change. Like the bond market had been, the yields had been going up. Now they're starting to, in a, in a dramatic kind of way, but starting to skyrocket higher. And rate of change in any market is what kind of opens the door for somebody to being kind of badly offside, some unprepared that, you know, markets have moved that much. The stock market, in a way, is still, I think, got some Tina, like there is no alternative. The bond market here has had its worst quarter in 40 years or more. Uh, like, People are looking around. Certainly the real estate market has been terrific, but you think maybe it's just running too hot and you don't want to put your money in a bond market. You know, where do you go? The U.S. dollar is surging here. That's where two year high, two year plus highs. And some of the other currencies like the yen at a seven year low are low because the Americans are perceived to be moving interest rates higher quickly relative to other people. So this, these changes in interest rates, and I haven't even touched on commodities yet, are impacting markets across the board and people's behavior. Well, one of the things we want to make sure people understand is that, uh, you know, the bond market sets its own interest rates. I, I, I get to decide personally, or if I'm the head of, head of a pension fund or, a, uh, you know, a hedge fund, I decide what I'll lend at, and you who wants to borrow the money will decide what you want to borrow at. So we've already seen this huge move. I was looking, uh, you know, uh, earlier today that the two-year interest rate, you know, two-year government of uh, Canada bond rate, as an example, this time last year, like literally this time was 0.24 of a percent, under a quarter of a percent. What are we, about 2.35% right now? That's like 10 times higher. A uh, five-year interest rate in Canada was 0.95%, under 1% this time last year. Well, it's 2.5% now. I mean, that's a 150% move. So you're ju I just want to uh, underline your point about it's the rate of increase that's got people's attention. Uh, the other thing is that, just to, again, to highlight the importance, the Federal Reserve has said they're not going to, they're going to, in fact, reduce the amount of government bonds they own. In other words, they're not going to jump in. Well, that's why we had record low rates. It was the government buying, or rather the Treasury Department in the States, our Bank of Canada, the Federal Reserve, buying government bonds to keep the rates down. And they're saying, hey, no more. And as you said, Vic, the immediate reaction was long-term interest rates went up. Well, and now let me come in here as the trader, the guy who always sort of smells rat. Uh, <laughs> when markets get hysterical about something, like, you know, when we had $130 oil last month, everybody was saying we're going to be at $200 by summer. 
Well, that's when the markets sort of had their uh, their moment of truth or their inflection point, as George Soros might say. I, I expect that we're going to see the printed inflation numbers actually probably have hit their high and they're going to start to back off. I mean, just the, the base effects going back to where we were a year ago, for instance, is going to contribute some of that. But uh, we've just seen a lot of um, a lot of rush for, for higher interest rates, a lot of reasons here. And from a trading perspective, we may have kind of seen the highs. I don't want to be a buyer of bonds here just you know, to, to pick the, you know, the bottom in the bond market or try to pick the top in, in yields. But I, I sense that there's just maybe a little too much hysteria here. And that's going to uh, we're, we're going to see maybe an inflection point. Good stuff, Vic. Thanks for taking the time. Great, Mike. Always fun to talk to you. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, the federal government's ordering the bank accounts of those people who supported the truckers' convoy, along with some relatives, to be frozen. Should have been on the short list for most important stories of the year. I mean, people who donated to a legal protest were not charged, let alone convicted of anything, other than supporting a protest that the government didn't like. I mean, the political weaponization of people's private bank accounts, I think, set a precedent that should scare the heck out of everyone. By the prime minister's own words and actions, the government believes there are views and opinions that are unacceptable despite being perfectly legal and should be punished as the freezing of bank accounts clearly illustrated. But it's the same attitude also that underlies the government's latest iteration for censorship of the internet, with the government pushing to muzzle legal speech online but they find it unacceptable. Private property rights, though, are one of the fundamentals of a democracy and one of the foundations of prosperity. Systems that don't guarantee private property rights consistently have lower standards of living, low levels of economic growth and innovation. My point is that we shouldn't take the assault on your property rights lightly, but it appears we have, including in most corners of the media. And that deserves a goofy award, which carries over into the federal budget which laughingly states in quotes, a safe and secure financial system is a cornerstone of our economy. Well, let's ask the hundreds of innocent Canadians who saw their bank accounts frozen, how safe and secure they feel. And also other reports of people taking money out of banks in the aftermath suggest that many others don't feel safe and secure either. I mean, it's arguably what happened there was the best argument for Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies to date with many justifiably concerned with this, that this is the beginning of a very slippery slope. Today, it's the truckers' convoy supporters. Tomorrow, it could be someone who runs afoul of the climate agenda. Because clearly, in the government eyes, anyone who doesn't subscribe to the climate agenda is holding an unacceptable view. So let's fast forward to the federal budget, which has earmarked money for a review of cryptocurrencies and how government could regulate them. Because Right now, the government has no ability to actually control them, as they just proved they were able to do with the big banks and other financial institutions. With cryptocurrencies, though, there's no centralized control. The individual controls are Bitcoin or whatever, secured on the blockchain. But the budget goes further, authorizing money to review by the Bank of Canada the need for a digital currency, although that's a little late. You know, the Bank of Canada has already been developing a digital currency for at least two years. My point, though, is that the political weaponization against the supporters of the truckers' convoy realized the worst fears of those who worry about a digital currency because it'll give government unprecedented powers to control our financial lives. 
I mean, the government be able to know the source of our money, where we spend it, how much in short, uh, every transaction you make. That may sound strange to some people, but consider most of us already use electronic banking. We don't pay with cash that often, but rather it's a credit card or maybe Apple Pay or the like. A digital currency would do away with the need for government to send out checks, for example. Instead, everyone would be direct deposit. But beyond the ability to monitor our transactions, government could also, you know, potentially deposit or potentially withdraw from our personal bank accounts, maybe as a penalty for behavior they didn't approve of, including maybe parking tickets or other fines automatically going out of your account. But they could go beyond that. As Al Gore said during COP26 in November, that they're going to have the technological ability to know what everyone's individual carbon footprint is. They'll know the origination. Is it really a big stretch to see governments rewarding those that meet their emission standard and punishing those that don't? And the point is, will the Charter of Rights protect us? protect our financial privacy, et cetera. Well, come on, the government's willingness to free supporters of the trucker convoy bank account, I think gives us a very clear answer on that. And as I said, we should all be concerned. Hey, that's all the time we have this week. I just want to remind you though, I'm going to be doing the first Q&A for our members of the Inside Edge. It's coming up uh, the 14th at six o'clock. I'm looking forward to it. It's not going to take a long time, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes, whatever. We'll just answer some questions. Don't get a chance to chat very often. So you'll be able to do that. And every member of the Inside Edge will have a chance. But hey, if you're not a member of the Inside Edge, hey, you can go ahead, go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and jump on and you could join the Inside Edge. There's lots of things. I mean, great content there. I'm just talking about one of the added features, which is doing the Q&A, but you can do it. So check it out. In the meantime, have a terrific weekend and a terrific week. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet. 